welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Countdown, The Young Turks, Tom Hartman, and Mark Marin. We have found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, 15-year-old weapons of mass destruction that could give you the equivalent of a serious rug burn. Our fifth story on the countdown, independent experts and the level-headed staggering in amazement tonight that deteriorated mustard gas canisters, at least 15 years old and as much as 18 years old, could be palmed off by desperate politicians as some kind of rationale for the deaths of 2,500 American servicemen and women in Iraq. Republican Senator Rick Santorum, down 18% in the polls in his own re-election bid in Pennsylvania, joined by the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Representative Pete Hoekstra of Michigan, in pimping part of a two-month-old military intelligence report describing the existence of old munitions shells with chemical weapons that are degraded, unusable, and non-threatening. We have found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, chemical weapons, Santorum told a news conference. Gullible news organizations treated the story with slightly less fervor than they might the second coming. Since 2003, Santorum said, reading from the report, coalition forces have recovered approximately 500 weapons munitions which contain degraded mustard or sarin nerve agent. Pre-Gulf War chemical munitions are assessed to still exist. While agents degrade over time, chemical warfare agents remain hazardous and potentially lethal. Santorum adding, this is an incredibly, in my mind, significant finding. Congressman Hoekstra was not quite as restrained. This says weapons have been discovered, more weapons exist, and they state that Iraq was not a WMD-free zone, he foamed, that there are continuing threats from the materials that are or may still be in Iraq. But a Pentagon official contradicted the Republican leaders, telling NBC News this does not reflect a capacity that was built up after 1991. The weapons are the same kind of ordnance the U.S. military has been gathering up in Iraq for the past several years. And these munitions, quoting again, are not the WMDs this country and the rest of the world believed Iraq had, and not the WMDs for which this country went to war. That is a distinction that clearly eluded the official's boss at the Pentagon. What's been announced is accurate, that uh, the, there have been hundreds of canisters or weapons of various types found that either ha- currently have sarin in them or had sarin in them, and sarin's dangerous. And they are weapons of mass destruction. They're, they're harmful to human beings, and, uh, and they have been found, and they had not been reported by Saddam Hussein as he inaccurately alleged that he had reported all of his weapons, and they are still being found and discovered. And they're dangerous, as was any exposure to the sun endured by whoever went searching for them. Moreover, the Washington Post Post reports that the munition shells, which Santorum and Hoekstra have clutched to their bosoms, were found buried near the Iranian border, forgotten by Iraqi troops in their war with Iran, which ended in 1988. And the former chief U.N. weapons inspector and President Bush's former Iraq survey group chief, Dr. David Kay, telling Countdown that Senator Santorum's comments are, quote, wrong as to the facts and exaggerated beyond all reason 
as to the interpretation of the facts. He continued, there is no surprise that very small numbers of chemical canisters from the Iran-Iraq war have been found. The ISG found them, and in my testimony in 2004, I said that I expected that we would continue to find them for a very long time. These are in very small numbers and are scattered. The nerve agents have long since degraded to the point that they no longer pose any substantial threat. In most cases, the mustard agent has substantially degraded, but will burn your skin. Burn you, rather, if skin comes in contact with it. I'm joined now by the Senior Vice President for National Security at the Center for American Progress in Washington, Joseph Cirincioni. He is also co-author of Deadly Arsenals, Tracking Weapons of Mass Destruction. Thank you for your time, sir. My pleasure, Keith. To make the statement, we have found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in the context of the last five years. Does the person making that statement have to either be exaggerating to the point of dishonesty or simply not capable of understanding what ma weapons of mass destruction really are? <laughs> Those are my two choices. Yeah. I think the first time Senator Santorum claimed there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It was a tragedy, but this truly is a farce. No one should be under the illusion that, that these weapons were in, in any way militarily useful or represent some kind of hidden catch that uh, Saddam had in, 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 in secret. These were clearly weapons, and we knew about these, that the Iraqis had disposed of, that had buried in the desert, forgotten about. We, were, we find these periodically. They represent no significant military capability at all. We'll speak to the politics of this in a moment with our next guest, but the, the document that was trotted out from the NIGC, it was two months old. If it had anywhere near the significance that these two lawmakers are assigning to it, why would this be the first we would be hearing about it? Well, actually, I spoke to an official familiar with this document, and when it was uh, produced in April, they, they got a call from the National Security Council uh, inquiring about it, and they got back from DOD the, the very response that you cited earlier in this broadcast, that these were not militarily significant weapons. These were old weapons, and there was nothing to contradict the official finding of the Iraq survey group that, in fact, Saddam Hussein had unilaterally disposed of his chemical weapons back in 1991. There never were any chemical weapons there for us to find after that time, except for these old, forgotten remnants. And the claim of, of the Secretary of Defense, Mr. Rumsfeld, that they are dangerous, he said they are WMD, they are harmful to human beings, is that sophistry or dishonesty, or I'll give you a third choice here, is that the, the equivalent of, of uh, it depends on what the meaning of is is? Well, it, it, that is really parsing your words very carefully, and I would say intentionally misleading. These are dangerous only the way uh, old chemical munitions that we occasionally find in the United States are dangerous. That is, this mustard gas in particular it does hang around for a long time, it is an irritant. It can harm you, potentially lethal, but, but not in any sense a, a, a militarily deliverable weapon, not in any sense a justification for the war. So the Defense Department official who said these are not the WMDs for which this country went to war, that, that about sums this story up? That about sums it up. At the time, we were told there were hundreds of tons of these weapons. There were not. We were told that, in fact, the key threat was that Saddam may have a nuclear weapon. We didn't go to war over mustard gas. We went over nukes. There, were no, there wasn't even any mustard gas. There wasn't any biological weapons. There weren't any nuclear weapons, nor, we now conclude, were there any programs underway to produce those. There was nothing at all. Oh.
or merely programs to produce uh, the impression that they that they existed. Joseph Cirincione of the American, uh, the Center for American Progress in Washington, co-author of Deadly Arsenals: Tracking Weapons of Mass Destruction. Great, thanks for your time and for your honesty. My pleasure. As promised, the political end of this mind-binding, mind-bending nonsense. I can't even say it. I'd like to call in Newsweek senior editor and NBC political analyst Jonathan Alter, also the author of The Defining Moment: FDR's Hundred Days and the Triumph of Hope. Jonathan, thanks for your time again. Thanks very much, Keith. Well, we've all seen political three-card Mahdi tricks before by, by <laughs> politicians at all levels, all parties. But is this mere spinning, or have Senator Santorum and Congressman Hoekstra moved directly into the league of Joe McCarthy waving the blank page that's supposed to contain the list of communists in the 50s? Well, uh, I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's to use a hackneyed football metaphor. It's a sort of a pathetic Hail Mary pass. The guy is down 18 points in Pennsylvania. He's looking political oblivion in the face, and so he comes up with this cockamamie scheme uh, to try to, uh, I see it as sort of doubling down. Um, after Karl Rove first tried to call a couple of war heroes, John Murtha and John Kerry, pansies, now uh, Santorum is going to take a leaf from Rove and try to call black, white, white, black, confuse everybody, play on the instinct in journalism to say, hey, People disagree. Some people say they're WMDs. Some people don't, which you know manipulates us into making uh, people think um, that this is an open question. Fortunately, he failed, uh, and this blew up in his face. But um, I think from his perspective, it was probably worth a try to see if he could manipulate everybody into believing that WMDs were actually an open question. But was this his effort uh, and, and Hoekstra's on their own? Santorum was asked quite properly after that if this was even remotely true. Why didn't the president announce it? And his answer was the administration has been very clear that they want to look forward. They felt it was not their role to go back and fight previous discussions. Could these guys possibly have gone out on this limb without White House approval or knowledge? Is the White House that ineffectual now? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, um, but I would imagine, based on Secretary Rumsfeld's response, uh, that the position of the White House and the political people, and you've got to include Rumsfeld in that group, is, hey, let Santorum try to win his race. If he wants to go out there and distort the truth, that's politics. So I'm sure they winked at this. The reason they didn't announce it themselves, it would have blown up in their face uh, with, with all the experts saying that it was untrue. Um, so I think they figure they chalk this up to, uh, you know, a Santorum desperation move and um, it's, it put a little distance between themselves and Santorum. As for Rumsfeld, he doesn't really care because, uh, you know, he's, he's in this, hey, what does it matter phase of his life where he'll basically say anything. He's not running for re-election himself. He's apparently got eternal job security in this administration. So he was willing to carry a little water for uh, Santorum today, even though he flirted very close to, uh, to uh, saying some untruths from that podium today. Last question. A pure politics, even if this is, you know, freelancing by the part of, on the part of Hoekstra and Santorum, is that all the Republican Party has left about Iraq? Literally to dig into the ground for 18-year-old Iran-Iraq war mustard canisters that might give you an acid burn and try to rationalize, retroactively rationalize a war on that that couldn't make up something less embarrassing than this? Well, they actually have a strategy that seems to be fairly effective so far if the Democrats are dumb enough to fall for it, which is to try to scare the Democrats into stopping talking about Iraq by, by accusing uh, 
Democrats of wanting to cut and run. They use that word cut and run over and over again because they're hoping to make this election about the Democrats and their lack of unity rather than about the president's failed policy in Iraq. So if the Democrats are smart, and I think some of them are, they'll come back and just repeat like uh, the cut and run mantra, the president's failed policy in Iraq, try to hold the Republicans accountable. But they're, they're, they're figuring they're going to go after the Democrats' strength, which in this case is the president's problems in Iraq. That's Rove's strategy. He's used it going all the way back to Texas to instead of changing the subject to something else, to go at what looks like their strength. That's what he did against John Kerry in 2004. They're going to try it again. And Keith, what's really interesting is it may even work. The Democrats might be so inept that they get pulled into that briar patch. Jonathan Alter of NBC and, of course, senior editor at Newsweek. And always, uh, sir, our great thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, Keith. Uh, the President of the United States was in uh, Vienna, Austria today uh, as part of a uh, diplomatic uh, mission. Do you think he said, good day? <laughs> Do you think he walked around saying, good day, good day? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Throw another shrimp on the Klaus Barbie. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, like he'd make that joke. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so he was in, uh, uh, he's in Austria, and he held a press conference uh, filled with the European uh, press members, of course. Uh, and uh, it was asked by a member of the uh, press, I think the Austrian press, if I'm not mistaken, why approval for his policies, particularly national security issues, war in Iraq, stuff like that, was so low in Europe. And Bush then sought to explain that uh, Europeans didn't take the September 11th attacks seriously. Uh, president saying that uh, for Europe, September 11th was a moment for us, a change of thinking. So here is the question first, I believe we have, and then uh, President Bush's response uh, at the press conference today in Vienna. Mr. President, you said this is absurd, but you might be aware that uh, in Europe, the image of America is still falling, and dramatically in some areas. Let me give you some numbers. In Austria, in this country, only 14% of the people believe that the United States or the Adung is good for peace. 64% think that it is bad. In the United Kingdom, you are ally. There are more citizens who believe that the United States policy under your leadership is uh, helping to destabilize the world than Iran. So my question to you is, why do you think that you fail so badly to convince Europeans to win their heads and hearts and minds. Thank you. Well, um, yeah, I thought it was absurd for people to think that we're more dangerous than Iran. <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know, it's a, we're a transparent democracy. People know exactly what's on our mind. We debate things in the open. Um, we've got a you know, legislative process that's uh, active. I, I look, people didn't agree with my decision on Iraq. And I understand that. Um, for Europe, September the 11th was a moment. For us, it was a change of thinking. I vowed to the American people I would do everything I could to defend our people and will. I fully understood that the longer we got away from September the 11th, more people would forget the lessons of September the 11th, but I'm not going to forget them. 
and therefore I will be steadfast and diligent and strong in defending our country. Uh, I don't govern by polls, you know, I, I just do what I think is right. And I understand some of the decisions I've made are controversial. But I made them in the best interest of our country and I think in the best interest of the world. I believe when you look back at this moment, uh, people will say it was right to encourage democracy in the Middle East. I understand some people think that can't work. I believe in the universality of freedom. Some don't. I'm going to act on my beliefs so long as I'm the President of the United States. Some people say it's okay to condemn people for t t tyranny. I don't believe it's okay to condemn people for t t tyranny particularly those of us who live in the free societies. And so I understand, and I'll try to do my best to explain to the Europeans that on the one hand we're tough when it comes to the war on terror, on the other hand we're providing more money than ever before in the world's history for HIV AIDS on the Africa. I'll say on the one hand we're going to be tough when it comes to terrorist regimes who uh, harbor weapons. On the other hand, we'll help feed the hungry. Mr. President, you said this is absurd, but you might be aware... All right, so... Uh Harbor weapons, I enjoy yeah, too. I also like to to tyranny. Uh, yeah. What's what that about? T -t 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 tyranny. Chia. So there were so many things about that 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 I love. First, the shrug of the shoulders when when he read the poll number, sixty four percent of the people don't. You know, sixty four percent think that that what you're not helping the peace process. Fourteen percent of the people believe in Austria, the United States. What they're doing is good for peace. Sixty four think it's bad. Bush spreads his arm, shrugs his shoulders, like yeah, idiots. Yeah, who these people think they are? But you know, he 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 answered the question in its in its totality. I think pretty well from where he's standing. Uh, I don't. I give him an F. Uh, I mean, he can do worse. We've invented a G uh, for the president. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it, it, it's everything to me that, that's wrong with this guy. Um, that, uh, first of all, uh, we're a transparent democracy. People know exactly what's on our mind. We debate things in the open. We've got a legislative process that's active. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what that means, but uh, we do have a legislative process. We don't debate things uh, in the open, it turns out, not things that are important, not the things that led us into this war with Iraq. No, but that's what I'm saying from, where, from his position. I well, think that he, he he made his point as well as he can make his point. I don't obviously agree with it. I I also think a lot of it is a lie, especially what you just what you just covered, Ben. I think that it's clearly a lie that we that there's an open debate that's gone on at all uh, in his administration over the most yeah. important things. Right. So I mean, well, I mean, quite so, the opposite. But w what I'm saying is he sometimes stumbles around those things too. He sometimes isn't as forthright about saying them. I'm just talking well, about yeah, his I mean, execution. He got, it, he got it out okay. But yeah. I mean, here's a. I believe when you look back at this moment, people will say it was right to encourage democracy in the Middle East. I, I first of all, I think when people look back at this moment, they will consider it the largest foreign policy blunder in the history of the United States of America, and, and believe us, we're hardly alone there, right? Uh, I understand, and here's where, we, here's, where, uh, here's where he leaves the reservation and gets his typical F. I understand some people think that can't work. I believe in the university universality yeah, yeah. of freedom. Some don't. Some don't. Yeah, there are a lot of people who don't. And the, uh, suggesting that it's the 64% of Europeans right. who don't believe in that. It's obvious that Austria doesn't. <laughs> right. Uh, he goes on, I'm going to act on my beliefs so long as I'm president of the United States. Some people say it's okay to condemn people to tyranny. Who says that? I mean... Uh, yeah, uh, mania, maniacal leaders, tyrannists. I mean, uh, you know, tyrants. Yeah, tyrants say that, but not 64% of Austrians. 
not our allies, not the people who disagree with you. And he suggests a scenario, of course, setting up the straw man that if you disagree with me, hey, it's okay. It's a reasonable debate. You want to condemn people to tyranny? I'm just doing my job. I just right. want to set people free. It's Some people say it's okay to condemn people to tyranny. I don't believe it's okay to condemn people to tyranny, particularly those of us who live in free societies. Once again, reemphasizing the point that I'm talking to people in free societies right. who think it's okay to condemn people to, uh, uh, to tyranny. Uh, and then uh, it goes on to the nonsense about terrorist regimes who, uh, who harbor weapons. And I always love the... Uh, uh, that uh, I don't govern by polls, you know. I just do what I think is right. I mean, every politician says it. It, it's just, it sounds remarkably disingenuous uh, uh, when he says it. Um, I didn't, you're right, uh, the t -t -t tyranny was funny. I yeah. wish I had paid more attention to that. Um, you twice, know, though. He said it twice. I fully understand that we got away from September. The more longer we got away, more people would forget the lessons of September 11th, but I'm not going to forget them. Uh, September 11th uh, for Europe was a moment. For us, it was a change of thinking. Uh, you know, and uh, just uh, this guy, it's uh, it's brutal. It's 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 agonizing, and the use of straw men is uh, degrading, insulting. Uh, you know, pick your word, but it's uh, uh, and it's so typical, and they've never gotten away for it, from it, and nobody ever calls them on it. I mean, half of his whole answer, half of this answer is some people say it's okay to condemn people to tyranny. Some people don't believe in the universality of freedom. What the hell kind of nonsense is that? Who are we talking about? Who doesn't believe in the universality of freedom? George W. Bush out there, you know, his I'm the decider, his recent I'm the decider, wasn't the first time he said it. Just like recently when he said, you know, I never should have said bring him on. He said that two years ago also. Some of the press like rediscovers these things. Here's the original I'm the decider. This was just before, this was about three weeks before we went to war in Iraq. And we now know that when he said this, this was like after the Downing Street memo had been written, long before it was seen by us, but after it had been written, we now know he had already had meetings with Tony Blair and said, we're going in. And we're going to fix the intelligence around the policy of going in, because we're going to attack Iraq. You said we're headed to war in Iraq. I don't know why you say that. I hope we're not headed to war in Iraq. I'm the person who gets to decide, not you. I'm the person who gets to decide, not you. I mean, just laying it right out. Now, why did we go to war in Iraq? Some people think that it's because of uh, oil. Iraq sits on top of 10% of the world's oil reserves. Very significant reserves, second only to Saudi Arabia. And, and of course, a little later on in the day, uh, he said... Uh, you don't know the power of the dark side. Yeah, but see, I don't really think that it was oil. That, that was a bonus. I believe that the reason that we went into Iraq is, by and large, the same reason that Bush is trying to drive us into Iran right now see it just came out that back in 2003 three years ago Iran offered to talk to the United States and said they would drop their opposition to the existence of Israel they would stop supporting Hamas and Hezbollah and any other group that we wanted to call terrorist that they would that they would not go forward with any uranium enrichment at that time they were not enriching uranium they offered they said everything's on the table Let's talk. And the Bush administration said, nope. 
ain't going to talk to you. Just like when Saddam said, hey, you know, come on in, look around. You're welcome to look around. Hey, please. And you got Hans Blix going, you know, well, we're not seeing anything here. There's nothing around here. We're looking all over the place. There's, there's, just give us a couple more weeks. We can prove to you there's no weapons of mass destruction. Mohammed El-Baradai, the head of the IAEA, saying, oh, there's no evidence of nuclear program here. And then after the invasion, Bush reinvents history. Bush, you'll recall, was the guy who pulled out the inspectors so that they wouldn't get blown up when we started the war in Iraq. I, seriously. I'm not making this up. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. And then he, and then he reinvents history. He comes out and said, this is after the invasion that he said he didn't want to do. He comes out and he says, well, the reason we went in was because uh, Saddam wouldn't let the inspectors in. You say, what? The whole world was watching those inspectors. Now, you would think Al Gore saying that he invented the Internet, which, by the way, he didn't say. He said he was proud to have voted for the bill that created the Internet. But the Republicans twisted this thing around. You know, a couple of the Republican right-wing talk radio got a hold of it and said, oh, Al Gore's claiming he invented the Internet. And, And it kicked around so much that probably every American thinks that Al Gore said he invented the Internet. How come Americans don't know that Bush said that, that Saddam wouldn't allow the inspectors in, and that's why we had to invade. The larger point is, and the fundamental question is, does Saddam Hussein have a weapons program? And the answer is absolutely. And we gave him a chance to allow the inspectors in, and he wouldn't let them in. And therefore, after a reasonable request, we decided to remove him from power, along with other nations, so as to make sure he was not a threat to the United States. Yeah. And then, of course, at the RNC, Bush just went off on an absolute rant. I mean, this is talking to his own Republican guys. All he could say was, be afraid, be afraid, going on and on and on about it. Be afraid, September the 11th. We saw tragedy arrive on a quiet morning. The evil terrorists, danger, doom killers. Be afraid. These are in-sequence excerpts from Bush's speech before the RNC. His, his renomination speech, 2004. Terrorism. Be afraid. We have fought the terrorists across the earth. Evil. We are staying on the offensive, striking terrorists abroad, and nothing will hold us back, and we will prevail. Be afraid. God bless America. Nuclear weapons. Is this the way that we want America to be viewed? Is this the kind of America that we have now, that where we're, we're terrified, where we have a leader who just thumps the table and pounds it, yells, uh, Be afraid, but look at war, right? evil, yeah, terrorists. Saddam Hussein terror, weapons of mass destruction. The almighty God, the dictator, Afghanistan terrorists of Afghanistan and Iraq. Fight terrorists, various terrorist enemies we are facing in Iraq. We are defeating the terrorists doing battle in Afghanistan and Iraq. The resurrection, Saddam Hussein's secret police, sadistic punishment, mass graves, radical ideology of hate, kill the innocent, tyranny and terror. Yeah, and on it goes. I mean, this is, this, this is Bush's speech to his own people. Well, people again say, well, then why did we invade? Well, I think Cindy Sheehan nailed it. I mean, it wasn't her idea. She was simply citing history. Mickey Herskowitz, the guy that the Bush family, a Bush family friend, the guy that the Bush family, you read all about it in Kitty Kelly's book, The Family. Mickey Herskowitz, the guy that the Bush family hired to write, to ghostwrite George Bush's autobiography, because he couldn't write his way out of a, he couldn't write a grocery list. To ghostwrite his his autobiography, A Charge to Keep, talked publicly about what 
George said to him in 1999. And here's Cindy Sheehan testifying before John Conyers' commission about it. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then-Governor George Bush stated, One of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander-in-chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. He's going to get everything passed he wants to get passed. Of course, you know what that means. It means rolling back the New Deal. The Bush family declared... Prescott Bush, you know, Bush's grandfather declared war on Franklin Roosevelt when Roosevelt shut him down for dealing with the Nazis during World War II. And ever since then, the Bush family has been committed to rolling back the New Deal. Roosevelt's idea of unemployment insurance and strong unionization. And uh, down the road is Harry Truman, the Roosevelt's vice president, came out with national health care program. Uh, although it never happened, it started, I guess you could say, Medicare, Medicaid. That wasn't until the 60s, obviously not in Roosevelt's time. But you look at the, the, the New Deal, the, the government is the employer of last resort. Just the fundamental concepts of the New Deal. But no, the conservatives, no, nothing to do with that. Roosevelt is dead. His policies may live on, but we're in the process of doing something about that as well. Yeah, they are. And so I think it's appropriate once in a while as we look at the terror and the grim, just the grim, grim worldview brought to us by today's Republicans. That we consider how different America was just a few decades ago. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this. A modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Dwight Eisenhower speaking to the American Society of Newspaper Editors in Washington, D.C., April 16, 1953. 1953, not so very long ago. And now we're getting this memo from Zalmay Khalilazad, our ambassador to Baghdad, telling us about the Iraq that has been brought about by Bush's policies, Bush's policies of using fear and using war as a political tool. 
as a way of rolling back the New Deal and getting everything passed that he wants to get passed. Now, someone who is definitely against the war is uh, is our guest, uh, uh, Aaron Watada, who we're going to get on the phone here in just a second. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Army First Lieutenant Aaron Watada, he joined the Army in 2003 because he believed in the war in Iraq. Okay, Now it is 2006. He has turned in his resignation in protest of that same war and is what up to now, I think, an unprecedented act in this war, and that is uh, an officer. Uh, an officer's public dissent. And I also think it's important that you realize uh, that Lieutenant Watada does not want to leave the military. This is not against the military. He is standing up for what he believes about this war. He could face a court-martial, dishonorable discharge, uh, but he is standing up for the truth here. He is on the phone with us now. Welcome to the show, Lieutenant Aaron Watada. Thank you, Mark. You bet. Now, what made you decide on a public dissent uh, as opposed to uh, probably what would have been a much different situation had you just done it privately uh, within the base? Sure. Well, the main thing that I wanted to do was I think when I was making my decision, um, you know, to to refuse the unlawful orders to take part in this war was uh, I was looking at the people in the past and especially people just recently within the military who have resisted the call for this war. And it gave me a certain amount of inspiration and hope. Um, and I wanted to do the same for I felt there were a lot of people still within the military who had their doubts. Um, so it was, I first contacted these support groups uh, to just put the word out that this, I was making this stand and this is what I was going through and, and you know, to give, give others some sort of inspiration. Uh-huh. Now, the, the, I, I have just read today that the Pentagon reports about 8,000 soldiers are actually uh, have been reported AWOL. So that means, you know, certainly in sentiment, uh, you are not alone. I have talked to other uh, members of the armed forces who, who anonymously uh, share your feelings, but I don't think any has done it at at, uh, at your rank, nor with the with the with the amount of. Uh, of, of uh, knowledge that you're bringing to this. W- what is the situation now? Um, well, basically, after I made that public announcement last week, I've been uh, accused of making disclosed statements officially, and they're opening up uh, Article 15-6 investigation uh, to whether formally charge me or not. Um, still waiting for the day when they're going to tell me to get on the plane, which should be within a, a few weeks. And at that point, I... I have told them that I simply will just not board the plane. What, what, now, what are they trying to prosecute you on? Oh, for the when I spoke out, they're trying to uh, a protected speech. Right, they're trying to prosecute me for, or trying to find out if they should prosecute me for making disloyal statements. Uh, I guess against the government or the president. Can they? Um, it's it's very it's very iffy, very arbitrary. You know, disloyal statements is such a Subjective term. Mm-hmm. Um, anything could be considered disloyal, I guess, or disrespectful. Huh. Um, but certainly, I think um, none of the statements I made were uh, trying to usurp the government or anything like that. So I don't think uh, I broke the law in any way. And it is the right of every, even people within the military, to to speak out their mind and their beliefs, as long as it's you know not in uniform and not during duty hours. So they're probably just bullying you, I would imagine. 
I think so. I mean, they they said in so many words that you know you don't want to add more charges uh, to you, and and certainly they want to set the example and to make other people who would think of doing the same thing think twice. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about that before we get into the history uh, of your act. What uh, what's been the reaction? Of uh, of your your uh, your comrades there of people on the base just on a social level. Um, certainly there's been you know a few who have been hostile. Mm-hmm. Uh, How does that play few... itself out? I'm sorry. How does that play itself out? Well, nobody has come directly to my face and said this is what I think, mm-hmm. but um, I've have received emails um, from those within the military uh, saying what they think. Um, but you know I've also received um, letters of support. Mm-hmm. Those within the military, and also those on base. Uh, there's been a few instances, guys coming up and shaking my hand, saying that you're doing the right thing. Thank you. Um, and then you know there are, I think for the most part, people are either indifferent or they may not have the same beliefs, but they support my right to to speak out and say my mind. Mm-hmm. Now, what made you? Uh, what made you decide? What, what is it? Uh, one thing or a series of things that uh, that this war uh, was and is illegal. I think it was a series of things, and not only is the war itself illegal, but those who have started the whole thing, um, have, in my mind, have not been held accountable for it. And the danger there is that if nobody speaks up against that, holds them accountable, that they believe that they can keep on doing the same thing, committing the same crimes, violating the same American laws. I, yeah, I think it's a, it's an amazingly courageous thing you're doing, and I just hope that... Uh that the rest of the country uh, sees and, 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 and hears it, you know, certainly we're going to put it on my show. I guess what I want to know is, is I spoke to Marjorie Cohn today about that, that what you're doing is actually a responsibility of an officer, according to the, the Nuremberg principles, that, that apparently if, if you see it as an illegal war and it is justifiably illegal, it is your responsibility to speak out along those lines. Right, Mark. That's, that's exactly the way I see it. There was a time where... I knew the truth, but yet I still thought I could do nothing as an officer, and that really tore me up on the inside because mm-hmm. I just saw the pain and suffering by, by the soldiers and their families and the Iraqis, and I just felt so helpless that there was nothing I could do. And then I kind of realized that, well, one, not only was I totally helpless, I was still a person and I had a responsibility as a human being to act, but I could also do so within, you know, under military regulations and under the law. You're right, it is my responsibility as an officer to to speak out against misconduct and only follow lawful orders. And the reason it's illegal are, are what? Can you list them for me? Sure. The The war itself is not a war based out of necessity, so it's a war of aggression, which is strictly prohibited by the U.N. Charter, mm-hmm. which we have signed on to, America has signed on to, uh, and the Nuremberg Principles, which we also have signed on to. Uh, Article 6 of the Constitution says that any treaty, that they, any international treaty that America signs on to, those treaties uh, and laws become domestic federal law. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we continue to break those laws by the, um, the government's policy and the condoning uh, of human rights abuses in Iraq and mm-hmm. the indiscriminate killing of civilians. Uh, those are all violations of the Geneva Convention, uh, 1907 Hague Convention, and the Army's own law of land warfare, Field mm-hmm. Manual 27-10. So now, unfortunately, if, it's, if I understand correctly, the, the only way this is most likely going to get into a courtroom for you to make your case is in a court-martial. Correct. But in order for me to have a fair trial, I believe there also needs to be a lot of public support. The public has to demand that there must be a fair trial and that we must, in that trial, debate 
whether this is actually a lawful war and that the order to participate in it is actually lawful or not. So the way this is going to play out, most likely, uh, is that you're going to be called to get on a plane to go to Iraq. You're going to say, uh, I will not go because of my principles and because of my state of protest. They will put you under arrest. There will be a, a court-martial proceedings, and, and the case will be made uh, against this war as being an illegal war and for your right to, uh, to, to, to stand in protest of that and, and to be uh, t- treated as a responsible officer as opposed to uh, somebody who has uh, dissented. Right. Mark, that's my hope. I hope that, um, that the judge overseeing this trial will will be able to give me a fair shake and will not be just you know another enabler of the administration and try to protect them by not allowing us to debate the merits of the legality of this war. Um, there was uh, an officer named Lieutenant um, Malcolm Smith over mm-hmm. in the UK. He also said that the war was illegal and he would not go for his third tour over to Iraq. And he was ready to debate the merits of the legality of the war and the judge would not allow the war to be put on trial, and he was subsequently court-martialed and sentenced to eight months in prison. There was also another guy in England who was a member of their uh, AOS, or uh, I I can't remember. SAS. SAS. He was a high-level, highly uh, qualified soldier who who had a similar protest. Uh, His protest was that he, he he did not enlist in the, the British Army to do the uh, the United States to enforce United States foreign policy, and from what I read, he was given uh, uh, he was discharged uh, honorably discharged with uh, you know accommodate you know recommendations from his commanding officer. I, I don't I don't know what the difference was in the case here, but uh, uh, Lieutenant Aaron Watata, what can uh, people like myself, uh, people who are who are on the radio, how how can I help you? The best way you can help me is just getting the word out to everybody that, you know, that we need to look at the issue of this war. Is it legal or is it not? And if it is illegal, then we cannot force members of the military to participate uh, in a crime. Mm. And, and then, you know, the people within the military who have these doubts uh, that the war is illegal need to know that the public supports them. So the public needs to be very vocal. It needs to be, you know, a consolidated, strong effort. Um, by everybody within this country. I think it is a responsibility of all Americans. And I think a lot of Americans have forgotten that there's a war being fought over there. Yeah, and they certainly don't know what it's about or, or what's really going on, that's for sure. So uh, you've got a, a hard few weeks ahead of you, Lieutenant, and, uh, but I think you're doing a, an amazing thing, and, and, uh, and, and I'll support you any way I can. Uh, I, I don't know if you're going to be uh, open to doing interviews. I know the timing, it's hard for you to do one uh, – because you can only do it off the base, but if you want, uh, I can I can put uh, some of the other uh, Air America hosts in touch with uh, with your contact, and perhaps uh, you can get the word out, uh, you, you know, on a couple of the other shows. Would you want me to do that? Sure, that would be great. And also, if you could have your listeners uh, visit the thankyoult.org website, there's going to be um, postings on what's happening day to day, and I think on the 27th of this month, there's going to be a national effort. To uh, protest by being charged and court-martialed. Well, well, thanks for the service you're doing for the country, Lieutenant, and uh, thanks for doing this interview. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. And I come here to talk. I hope you understand the 
Yeah, the spotlight shines upon you And how could anybody One of the signs of the apocalypse is when Norm Mineta is not a cabinet oh, well, member good anymore. Point, man. What a, that's the big news of the day, for crying out loud. <laughs> Norm Mineta has been a cabinet member for approximately 181 years in a row. No, that's actually, uh, I mean, you're, you're overstating it. He was first named, uh, I believe he was Secretary of Transportation under Harry Truman. Uh, then he served under Ike. Uh, Kennedy uh, Johnson, uh, uh, he actually took Nixon off, came back for Ford, Carter, Reagan, the first Bush, Clinton, and now uh, the second Bush. So, Norm Mineta, your Transportation Secretary for the last 83 years in a row, uh, actually, a cabinet member for 83 years ago, who's a commerce department, uh, the he secretary was at the Department of Commerce uh, under Clinton administration, has finally stepped down the reign of Mineta. You know, who says George Bush isn't bipartisan? He kept Norm Mineta on. Yeah. And it, it, today, everybody's talking about, uh, you know, wh- what a great American Norm Mineta was and how he reorganized the transportation department when they put the TSA in there for the airports. And then they then took it out two years later and gave it to Homeland Security. But Mineta was a trooper throughout. Okay. And he was the first Japanese-American to have his ass interned, I mean, uh, to serve on the in the cabinet, actually, that is true, and, and uh, to head a committee when he was in the House, et cetera, et cetera. Norm Mineta will miss you. Okay, uh, here's the funniest story of the day. Uh, I hope you're buckled up for it. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> we were talking about clowns before, Lieberman, uh, Santorum, etc. The, the biggest clown of them all, Saddam Hussein. He started a hunger strike yesterday. On principle, because his lawyers keep getting murdered. So he started the hunger strike yesterday? Yeah, mm-hmm. on Thursday. Uh, and let's see how long he's going to last. Oh. oh, the hunger strike's over. He uh, apparently he, he started... Did, it, it didn't even last a full day. He started it after breakfast. Uh, he refused lunch. And when it got to dinner time, he said, yeah, that'll about do it. And he took dinner. It's quite a hunger strike. <laughs> I That's get, you know, awesome. That's like me trying to quit smoking. I'm going to sp- quit smoking. Five hours later. Yeah, but yeah, it's not even you, missing a meal is not a hunger strike. It's missing a meal. It's probably what? a hunger strike for him. I mean, he used to be royalty. I mean, he was like throne food anytime he wanted it. Yeah. He was shoving grapes in his mouth. For him to miss two prison meals, he missed no. big. He missed no. one. He missed one. Oh. He missed one. He had breakfast. He missed lunch. He had dinner. No, that's not a hunger strike. That's being full. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's like Weight Watchers. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, so Norm Mineta broke the record for longest serving cabinet member. Uh, in America, and Saddam Hussein has broken the record for the shortest hunger strike on record. Yeah, it's good stuff. Congratulations. Way uh, to power through. Yeah, and by the way, he was on hunger strike with the rest of his comrades. They had started apparently two meals earlier, so they missed breakfast and dinner the night before. And they're like, you know, enough with this, all of our lawyers being killed, and we're not getting proper representation. But when Saddam threw in the towel at dinner time, they were like, ah, oh well. We uh, had a good run. And, me, and they gave up as well. Let me hit you with another good story here, Jenk, in this last moments of this segment. This is from a few days ago. Tuesday, I believe, House Republican leaders abruptly canceled a planned vote to renew the Voting Rights Act. 
oh. after a rank-and-file rebellion by lawmakers who say the civil rights measures unfairly single out southern states and promote multilingual ballots. God forbid we'd want people to understand what they're voting on. If you can vote, you're an American citizen and it strikes me that you should be able to understand it. The reversal represented a significant embarrassment for the party leadership. They thought to vote on the landmark anti-discrimination bill. Uh, apparently, it was these southern lawmakers. Here's a quote from Lynn Westmoreland of Georgia. She sa- he says, excuse me, a lot of it looks as if these are some old boys from the south who are trying to do away with it, said uh, Representative Westmoreland, who said it would be unfair to keep Georgia under the confines of the law when his state has cleaned up its voting rights record. And then Westmoreland continues, but these old boys are trying to make it constitutional enough that it will withstand the scrutiny of the Supreme Court. And therein lies the belief in the, this administration and this Congress toward the United States Constitution. They try to make laws constitutional enough. I'm Frank Bruno. And I'm the professor, Matt Matsky. Each week, we bring you a new episode of Bruno and the Professor, a podcast on politics from the great American West. Folks, are you tired of one political party that wants to take us back to the 50s and another one that wants to take us back to the 60s? So are we. Can you be a liberal in the land of wide open spaces? Can you appreciate freedom and individual rights and still respect the environment? Can you love the free market but still want to make sure every American has decent health care and a good education? We think you can. So sit back pop a beer, and shoot the breeze with Bruno and the Professor. Because D.C. looks a lot different from the West Coast. Download the podcast today at brunoandtheprofessor.com or look for us in iTunes. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I know this is a little bit lame. I should have mentioned it earlier in the week. But tomorrow's show, which that really just applies to me, um, so the, the show that's dated one day after this show, regardless of when you listen to it. Make sure not to miss that one. 99th episode spectacular. I've got a huge announcement at the end of the show. Um, This isn't one of those, you have to listen to it because it's the best episodes ever. In fact, I have no idea what the show is about. Um, It looks like a pretty normal show. But the the announcement at the end that's what you got to tune in for i've got uh i got i've got stuff to talk about uh very important as far as me and the show and taking a look back it's 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 going to be well i i don't know if it'll be great it'll be it's important though so i want you to hear that for sure so i'm talking about it now to encourage you to be sure to tune in tomorrow for that. In the meantime, if you're feeling extra frisky and want to help me out in any way, you can visit bestoftheleftpodcast.com. There's a whole section on the website. It's labeled support the show, and all of those links are things that I would like for you to do. Uh, most of them are just for fun. Uh, you, if, if you're feeling exceptionally helpful, you could take the survey on there. It helps me learn about what kind of listeners I have and so on and so on. So until tomorrow and my, my big, uh, it's not even an announcement. I don't know what it is. I couldn't figure out what to call it, but until tomorrow's big. No, never mind. I can't even think of what to call it. So, until tomorrow.
Have a good one, everybody. Hi, this is Twilight from the Twilight and Deep Show, and I'm a proud member of the Progressive Podcast Network. Visit and learn more at newmediarevolution.org.